comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, I'm stopping there because that first section really fits together. And we've come up to verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. One of the challenges in the world that we're living in are that people who have wealth or power look to exert what they want everybody to do through tyranny, domination, aggression, and violence. If you looked at history, I don't know, anybody here a history buff? Anybody like reading about history? Okay, a few. Um, you know, I, I, when I was at school, I hated history. Absolutely despised it. Probably because I had to memorize when so-and-so was born and so-and-so died and 1066 and all of that stuff. Uh, what was that? Battle of Hastings? I think something uh, that stuck in my mind. But when you look at history... There is hardly a war that has been fought that hasn't had behind it some human being wanting to push their ideas on other people. And if you look at what goes on in the world today, um, how people lobby governments and things, and they use their wealth, their power, I mean, you'll have all heard about good old David Cameron and, and, and how he's been lobbying for things. And you realize it's for his benefit. And so we recognize that with human beings, they want to force through their opinion on other people. We see that even in the West where we have a kind of freedom of speech that is slowly eroding because if you say something about certain groups, you will be verbally, physically, and all kinds of things attacked, even in these Western nations. Now, there is an encouraging scripture in Psalm 37. Now, you might be saying, what's this got to do with the meek? Well, we'll come there. I'm just trying to set a bit of a scene. And th Psalm 37, verse 9 to 11 says this, For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundance of peace. And notice how evildoers will be cut off, but the meek will inherit the earth. That which evil people try to do through their evil schemes in terms of inherit the earth, which is going to fail because it doesn't work like that, God will give to those who are meek. I find that just absolutely amazing. People who through their skill, through their power, through their wealth, try to oppress others and dominate will ultimately fail and those who have a meek attitude and character, they will inherit that because God will give it to them. What an irony. Now, that asks the question, what is this attribute of meekness? 
What is meekness? That means that God will give those the inheritance of the earth. Well, I turn to Nelson's new illustrated Bible dictionary. I don't know why they have to have such long titles, but that was that one. And it says this, meekness, an attitude of humility towards God and gentleness towards people. I like that. An attitude of humility towards God and gentleness towards people. It's something I'm praying consistently, Lord, make me like that. Because quite often I feel angry, I don't know about you. I go around, take my kids to school, and some parents block the pavement with their car. And gentleness towards people is not the first thing that springs to my mind. And there is a reason that meek people can be humble towards God and gentle towards people because they recognize that God is in control. If you go back to Psalm 37, there is a recognition that ultimately justice is going to be done. There may be people on the planet who get away with murder, literally. But we know that in the grand scheme of things with God, in view of all eternity, justice will be done by God. And so the meek person recognizes that and says, you know what? I'm going to be humble before God and I'm going to be gentle towards other people. And then it goes on and it says, although weakness and meekness may look similar, they are not the same. Weakness is due to, a, to negative circumstances such as a lack of strength or lack of courage, but meekness is due to a person's conscious choice. Now, I've highlighted that because that really speaks to me. That when I could say to that parent, you realise you've now blocked the pavement, you're causing everybody to walk on the road, you're a complete and utter not nice person. <laughs> Meekness says you make a conscious choice to not do something. And I find that a challenge. It is strength and courage under control and that it is coupled with kindness. Now, kindness will come up again and again. And when you think about God, just think about this for a moment. God could just wipe out every evil person right now, just like that. And yet we are told that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. It is actually the meekness of God that allows us to repent. It is the meekness of Jesus that meant he didn't call down 12 legions of angels and say, yeah, get that one and that one and that one. They were the ones pulling out my beard and, and smacking me around the head with a stick. No, he didn't do that. In meekness, he recognized his father is in control and he was gentle towards people. I think of the... Uh, the martyr Stephen when he was stoned to death and his last words were meek words he said don't hold this sin against them and it's a challenge isn't it because the quality is easily understood but it seems to be much harder to practice meekness is the exact opposite of this totalitarian authority that we see increasingly in the world, where they say, you need to agree with us or we are going to abuse you in some measure. 
It understands that you could exert force, but you choose not to, even when you're right. Because sometimes it's go, okay, let's not do it because this is not a right thing. But where we think we're right, and tragically, if you look at the history of the church, when it has had the power, it has not demonstrated meekness. And that's why people would look at history and say, well, the church has done just the same thing. Now, I need to highlight again, meek people recognise that God is in control. Maybe I should ask you that this morning in your own heart. Do you recognise in your life, no matter what is going on, no matter what you're experiencing, that God is still in control? And that's really, really important. Uh, I think of people like Corrie Ten Boom. Some of you won't uh, remember who she is, those of us who are older. Corrie Ten Boom was a lady who was in a concentration camp in Germany. Um, her sister died being tortured and everything, but still recognised that God is in control. Yeah. And no matter what the future holds for us, there is still the recognition that God is in control. And that means that meek people are people who exercise faith. They trust in God. They recognize that God helps people through. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, another long name, says biblical meekness is usually not simply gentleness and humility, but those qualities displayed with integrity during times of trial. And what better example than Jesus? Who, when he could have called down 12 legions of angels, allowed what happened to him to happen because he trusted in his Father. The test of meekness is often in hard times. And you, can you begin to see how these uh, blessings of Jesus tie together? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the meek. It all demonstrates that actually when we come to Jesus, we come with nothing, but he gives us everything. A further aspect of meekness is that it helps us to have a right view of ourselves. I find it quite interesting how people react to a mirror. Children, they love it. Look in the mirror. Yeah, looking good. Mm. Thanks, though. But, you know, our view of ourselves is actually a really key. Now, on the one hand, we are children of God. We are the apple of God's eye. But where we need to be careful is that it doesn't lead to an arrogance. That it doesn't lead to entitlement. We need to recognise that what we are is actually a gift. The result of who we are in Christ is not because we have managed to attain anything, not because we bring something to the party, but we are totally spiritually bankrupt and in our faith in Jesus, God supplies everything 100%. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my all-time favourite writers and preachers, says this, Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself expressing itself in an attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek 
is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. This makes him gentle, humble, sensitive, patient in all of his dealings with others. You see, the point is this, that when we recognise that without Jesus, we would be the same as everybody else. Remember the Apostle Paul, he said, I am chief amongst sinners. You hear the words, it is by the grace of God and by God's grace alone that I am, that I, that, that I am who I am. There is then a recognition that actually meekness produces, you know, it's by the grace of God where I am and I need to be humble and I need to be gentle because these people would be the same. The people that I get angry with who park their cars badly when I'm going to school are people who would also be different if they experienced the grace of Jesus. And so it's this kind of we need to be really careful how we wander because we could easily become arrogant. One of the tragic pictures in the Old Testament is about Saul who became king that initially when he was chosen, he was so fearful, he was hiding amongst the baggage. But then years later, he was so fearful of losing his power that he tried to kill God's anointed that was following along behind. Now, the reward of this meekness is that you will inherit the earth. Wow. You'll inherit the earth. When Jesus comes back and he rules on this earth for a period of time, you will rule with him because of the meekness that you walked on this earth. I think that's stunning. What people try to take by force, what they try to push through with their wealth and manipulation and all kinds of stuff, God says, here it is. And, and that's because you can trust meek people. Meek people can be trusted if we had people leading our nation who were meek, not weak, remember, it's not weakness. If we had people who were meek, we would be in such a better spiritual position. And then we come to verse 6, which says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst is really easy. Anybody ever been hungry? Anybody ever been thirsty? We kind of know that. Isn't it amazing that when you are hungry, you will almost eat anything? I'm on about real hunger. See, I'm, I won't tell this to Zoe and James because it's a little trick that mum and dad know. That we know whether our children are really hungry by what they refuse when we give it them to eat. That when they're not really hungry, then they only have a taste for chocolate or biscuits or crisps or that kind. But when they're really hungry, they will even eat vegetables. <laughs> it's amazing, I tell you. Hunger and thirst. We need to be those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. We do live in a degenerative world. And one of the things that's really worrying is that people are very happy with the way the world is going. There are lots of people in the world who enjoy the freedom to sin, enjoy the freedom uh, sexually and everything else to do what they want. 
you know, business people who enjoy the freedom to exploit others, that there is a massive group that are very happy with that kind of stuff. But there is another group of people, those who have faith in Jesus, who see the righteousness of God and who look at that and they're not content. They're not happy with what is happening. These are the ones that the Bible says they are the pilgrims in this world. They have given Jesus their allegiance and they are not happy with sin. And there's a challenge there that I want to throw out. How unhappy are you with the sin in the world? Because sometimes the thing is, sin can give a payoff. There is a pleasure in sin, but actually it is a pleasure that leaves a bad aftertaste. And sometimes we can say we're all for righteousness and yet we can enjoy the sin that is in the world. John Stott, when he talks about righteousness, says that in the Bible, there are three aspects to righteousness. There is legal righteousness, there is moral righteousness, and there is social righteousness. The legal righteousness is to do with our standing before God. And if that is not dealt with, then we won't be in heaven with Jesus. This requires repentance, it requires remorse, it requires a recognition that we have done wrong and a turning away from that. Moral righteousness is a righteousness that is displayed in our daily experience in our character. It is something that comes out of our knowledge that we are legally right with God and therefore we are choosing to live in a certain way. How does that work practically? Well, it means that there are some things on television that we won't watch because it's not morally right. There are some things that we won't teach our children or that we will ask that they are excluded in school because we believe it's morally wrong in terms of what they are being taught. And then there is the social uh, morality. And that is a morality that essentially says that we need to have an impact on the community around us. Now, there's a bit of a challenge about how we see those things. So we now live in an age where lots of Christian organizations are talking about justice. They're talking about making sure we get engaged politically and that we, we have social righteousness that we're pushing through. However, I'm not 100% convinced that that is how it should be working. And there's a really simple reason for that. No matter how the world goes, at the bottom of it is Satan. If you look at 1 John 5 verse 19, I'm reading it from the NLT because it's simpler. It says, we know that we are children of God. That's really good. We know that we are children of God. But then he also says, we know that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means simply this, that, that in, in 2,000 years of human history, nobody has ever politically or socially been able to change the world because Satan's behind it. He pulls the strings on that level. Now, some will say, oh, but haven't we had revivals that have caused change? Yes, we have. But here's the thing. Revivals 
do not work on a social or political level. They work in the heart of the individual. And as many individuals are impacted by, impacted by Jesus, it changes society around them. Does that mean that we should not engage socially or politically? I don't know. I really don't. I think it could be um, an alley we go down that takes a lot of energy. I think a lot of churches can be involved politically and socially and they can use that energy rather than helping people encounter Jesus. But at the same time, I also believe that as believers we need to stand up for truth. I believe we need to speak out against those things. And we have to work out the balance about how we do that. And so these folks who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're waiting for justice to be restored. You know, I never thought I would say it to the way that I say it, but I am increasingly looking forward to Jesus and hoping he will come soon. Because the world is, is such a place, and I fear for my children having to grow up in this environment. And I think, what are they going to have to face when they reach adulthood? And so I think, come, Lord Jesus. And part of that is because we walk in righteousness. Psalm 34 and Psalm, 30, and Psalm 107 give us this amazing promise. So Luke, um, when we're looking at... Uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it says they will be filled or they will be satisfied. And Luke 1, 53 says, he has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. In Psalm 34 and 107, uh, Psalm 34, the lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then Psalm 107, for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. And the thing I want to say that if you have the right appetite for righteousness, God will fill you with good things. God will fill your life and your heart with good things. But we have to have the right appetite. We have to hunger and thirst for the right things. It ties in with Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you. He doesn't give you any old thing. He gives you good things. I love that. God is a good giver of gifts. Maybe when you were younger, you had certain relatives and you knew when they gave you a gift, it was fairly boring. It was a pair of socks or, you know... It was, I don't know, some, some knitted hat or whatever. But then you had the other ones who gave you what you said. These are good gifts. You know, they'd put a tenner in an envelope or, you know, you think, wow, ooh, tenner nowadays it shows how old I am, but hey. But God gives good things. You know, he doesn't give you bad things. He gives you good things. He pours those good things out upon us. Now, there is a challenge that we need to ask. Remember Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. We need to ask. One of the things that amazes me is how little I actually ask. And, and, and sometimes I have this conversation in my head. It's kind of, well, God knows what I need. Why do I need to ask? Well, here's the simple answer to that question. Because he's told us to ask. 
He hasn't said, Simon, I will read your thoughts and respond. No, he's not said that. He hasn't said, think it and I will do it. No, he said, ask. And here's the strange thing. When you actually speak out, Father, I need this. Father, I need that. Father, I need some help with this. And when you engage two or, other, two or three other people to ask that with you, you'll be amazed at how more rapidly your prayers are being answered. There is something about it that we need to ask. We need to be persistent and we need to ask in faith. And we need to make sure that we're looking at the book of James when he says that when we ask, we don't receive because our motives are wrong. You know, I generally have met people who are praying that God would help them win the lottery. Now, let me tell you, that is never going to be answered. Well, I don't know, maybe, maybe. Why am I saying maybe? Because I think of the prayer of Jabez. Yeah, you remember the prayer of Jabez? Here's a guy who had suffered all of his life, had all difficulty, and he says, Lord, I've had enough. I don't want to suffer anymore. And God says, okay, I'm going to answer that one. Wow. So maybe, I don't know. But I would probably suggest that if you are praying to win the lottery every day, your focus is in the wrong place. So we have covered, over these kind of four sessions we've done, we've focused on the first four aspects of blessing. And I don't know if you've realized, but they are all to do with our relationship with God. They're all to do that we come with empty hands, but we leave with full hands. We come with nothing, but we are given absolutely everything. And they are a progression. John Stott says that we can see that the first four Beatitudes reveal a spiritual progression of relentless logic. Each leads to the next and proposes the one that has gone before. To begin with, we are to be poor in spirit, acknowledging our complete and utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. Next, we are to mourn over the cause of our spiritual bankruptcy, our sin, yes, and our sin too, the corruption of our fallen nature and the reign of sin and death in the world. Thirdly, we are to be meek, humble and gentle towards others allowing our spiritual poverty, admittedly unbewailed, to condition our behaviour to them as well as to God. And fourthly, we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. For what is the use of confessing and lamenting our sin, of acknowledging the truth about ourselves to both God and men, if we leave it there? Confession of sin must lead to a hunger for righteousness. And even though those four aspects of Jesus' blessing are a challenge, they give us amazing promises. And I want to encourage you, read through, meditate through those portions of scripture and say, yeah, that inheritance is mine. The kingdom of God, being filled, you know, being comforted, all of those things belong to us. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you. I thank you that you do love us. I want to thank you, Jesus, that when you walked on this earth, you made it abundantly clear how we can draw near to you, how we can be blessed uh, by you. And I want to pray for each one of us today 
that we would know the blessing of God in the land of the living. I want to pray that where we struggle, that where things are difficult, that you would help us. Where there's a challenge, that you would enable us to walk through. And so, Lord, I thank you. And I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to finish there. Thank you all. It's been really good to see you and uh, trust you will have a great and blessed week.